Many people have adopted an annual practice of going to get a physical exam. You may be one of those who does that, an annual exam where your physician runs you through a battery of tests and, and does x-rays and takes blood tests, evaluates your cholesterol levels and the blood pressure and those sorts of things. And you do that whether you're feeling good or feeling bad. You may, of course, go to your doctor when you're not feeling well and ask specifically for a symptom. But getting an annual checkup is a really good idea because you may be feeling good, but there might be an underlying condition that a test might identify, and early detection certainly helps us to catch a lot of things before they become more serious. But it makes me think about this. How can we know how healthy we are spiritually? There isn't a spiritual doctor that we can just go to that can run x-rays and, and run tests on us and come back with a factual report that shows us exactly where we're at. Well, Dr. Douglas Rumford in his fantastic book called Soul Shaping has given us a great way for us to evaluate where we're at spiritually along that continuum in a book called Soul Shaping I mentioned a second ago. He gave us 10 symptoms of indicate soul neglect where we're not taking care of our soul. The first of those is a low-grade depression fever, kind of always feeling just a little bit down, not really depressed, but not really knowing why, a nagging, gnawing sense of depression. A second one is being busy, which is all of us, but bored, not feeling like you're really engaged, you're really alive as you go through the busyness of your life. A third one is having a sense of loss over our life's routine, that things are beginning to overwhelm us, we're, we're not in charge anymore, things are taking our space and we don't feel like we can function well. A fourth one that follows that is a loss of responsiveness to others, feeling like that we're not being able to respond the way we once did, at least not with our whole heart. And fifthly, he says, an identification of a symptom of spiritual uh, need is withdrawal from responsibility and leadership. Maybe you've been involved in all kinds of things that suddenly you're feeling like this desire to pull back in many ways. Sixth is a preoccupation with projects of lesser importance. No longer going for the high heights, just kind of taking the easier way through things. The seventh one is feeling restless and a feeling of dissatisfaction. Just feeling like life just isn't getting it for you. The eighth one is very significant. A resurgence of unhealthy habits and a diminished impulse control and a diminished resistance to temptation. You find yourself dabbling in or moving towards things you thought you'd long since left behind. And that leads to the ninth one, which is feeling an ongoing sense of guilt and shame about ourselves. Instead of, instead of feeling our freedom in Christ and the joy of living that way, beginning to feel guilty and ashamed of how our lives are turning out. And last but not least, the most serious symptom on this list is having a hard heart. No longer feeling much of anything. No longer being sensitive or sensitized to the work of the Holy Spirit or even feeling anything in relationship one to another. That's a long list. And probably all of us, to some degree, have felt some of those things. But, you know, we as a culture spend an amazing amount of time and energy and resources on making our outer selves look good and feel good, don't we? I won't ask for a show of hands on how many people spent more than two minutes getting ready to come to church this morning. I mean, maybe three, four, five, maybe even half an hour. Maybe if you needed to take a shower and do things, maybe you spend an hour getting ready just to come out and be presentable to the world because we want to we present ourselves. I mean, it's a healthy thing to do. It's a good thing to do those things. But somehow, so many of us leave our inner selves unattended, just kind of like cruising along, thinking that somehow things will work themselves out. 
Reminds me of a time years back when my father had a company and had a company plane and we were cruising. I forget where we were going. I think we were heading to the East Coast or something in this small 10-passenger plane and had a professional pilot flying it in the left seat. And as we're cruising along at 30,000 feet, the pilot needed to use the restroom, which was at the back of the plane. So he got up from the pilot seat and headed back to the restroom, closed the door, and suddenly, because he'd left the plane on autopilot, the autopilot went off and the plane went into a nosedive. One of those kind of things. Needless to say, I was awakened from my near nap. I was like, what's going on? And he dashed back to the front of the plane and grabbed the helm and got us stabilized again. Well, friends, I think sometimes when our lives are on autopilot like that spiritually, where we're not really paying attention, things are kind of going along, we're going to church every Sunday, we're doing the same things we've been doing for years, and then suddenly an event happens. Something changes radically, and we realize that we're really not in control anymore. It's a wake-up call sometimes for many of us. And oftentimes a physician will recommend a course of action if they identify for us back to that analogy and say, well, you need to do more regular exercise to reduce your cholesterol or eat a different diet or take some kind of particular medication. But you know, spiritually speaking, so often if we're just kind of feeling good, just like with the medical recommendations, we'll just say, I I don't need that. I'm not, I will ask, how many of you had a prescription handed to you by a doctor for something you went to him and never filled it? Come on, you can be honest. Some of you have done it. Yeah, there's a few hands going up. I've done it, okay? I think I start feeling better. The sore throat goes away. Something happens. Okay, I'm better. And so we sort of bypass some things. Well, Peter is not just thinking when he gives us the directions he gives us in the first chapter of his second letter. He is giving us more than just spiritual vitamins. He's giving us a path that leads to a radically different and radically more healthy spiritual life. You see, when a doctor gives us a recommendation about something that we don't necessarily recognize ourselves, he's thinking way ahead. He's thinking 5 and 10 and 15 years down the road, isn't he? If he sees lifestyle habits or he sees cholesterol levels climbing or growing, he's thinking not of today where you're kind of getting away with it. He's thinking down the road where different things could develop. Peter in this passage we're looking at today, is thinking longer ahead than 20 years into the future. He's looking all the way into eternity because he knows the day is coming when each of us will look Jesus Christ square in the eye and give an account of ourselves to him. I know that he was personally sensitized to that because he had that experience while Jesus was on earth. We know the account. When Jesus had been arrested, Peter boldly said, I'm not going to deny you. I'll never leave you. I'll I'll be by your side through everything. And Jesus said, no, tonight you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, no way. Well, The scriptures reveal to us that Peter was in that outer courtyard warming himself close to Jesus. He was the only one that got that close. You got to give him a little bit of credit. But when tested, when pressured, he denied he knew Jesus three times. And he was in eye shot of Jesus. And after the cock crowed the second time, Jesus looked over at Peter. Peter made eye contact with Jesus. And he was deeply convicted and went out and wept bitterly. He knows what it was like to face Jesus feeling he'd let him down. He knows what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where it says, Paul says this, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body, meaning living here, or away from it, going into heaven. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. He knew what it was like, and Peter encourages us. And we're going to look at these seven steps in just a moment. But Peter begins this passage by saying, 
You and I, as Christ followers, have become partakers of the divine nature. Look around for a second. Look at the people you're sitting around. The people who are in Christ in this sanctuary are now partakers of the divine nature. They may not look like it. You might look like the same person you were roughly before you came to Christ, but when he enters into our lives, when the power of the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence inside of us, you become one who is enabled by the very power of God to live a life that's very, very different. It's not your human energy anymore. It's not your human strength. It's not your willpower. It's the power of the God of gods who said, I will come and be with you forever. So the steps that Peter recommends to us and directs us here in this passage are not something we do by human strength alone. There's a powerful energy of the Holy Spirit who's moving us in this direction so that we will be prepared to meet God on that special day. The first thing he says after that about all of these things is that because you become a partaker of the divine nature, therefore make every effort to supplement your faith with the things he's going to share. Make every effort. Get involved in the process of your spiritual growth. Don't just take it for granted. And don't take someone else's word for the way to become deeply spiritual. You've seen things modeled for you and others. You've seen good Christians. You've seen not so good Christians. You've seen good people and not so good people. We see all kinds of things modeled around us. But this is your faith. This is your life. We need to do our own work and not take someone else's recommendation on it. This reminds me, because some things get lost in translation, some things get put through filters when people are teaching the word that really just puts a filter on it. We really don't understand what it's saying. It reminds me of a time when a woman took her husband to the doctor's office. And after his checkup, the doctor said, your husband's suffering from a very serious infection. The husband, who is very hard of hearing, said, what did he say? His wife said, he says you're sick. Doctor went on, but there is hope. You just need to reduce his stress. Each morning, give him a healthy breakfast. Be pleasant, nice, and kind. For lunch and dinner, make him his favorite meal, and don't discuss your problems with him. It'll only make his stress worse. Don't yell at him or argue with him ever. And most importantly, just cater to your husband's every whim. If you can do this for your husband for the next six months to a year, I think your husband will have a complete recovery. The husband said, what did he say? The wife says, he says you're going to die. <laughs> that wasn't the exact message. But what the scriptures tell us is that we have been saved by grace through our faith. And that is not of ourselves. God has done the hard work. Jesus went to the cross he paid the price to bring us into relationship with God and enter, bring us into that life that leads us into heaven. So there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. But because of the divine nature, the Holy Spirit being shared with us, there is great expectation. And Philippians says to this, in chap, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, keep on working to complete your salvation with fear and trembling. Because God is working in you to help you want to do and be able to do what pleases him. Dallas Willard in an interview not that long ago said these words, The enemy in our time is not human capacity or overactivism, 
but the enemy is passivity. The idea that God has done everything and you are essentially left to be a consumer of the grace of God. And that the only thing you have to do now is to find out how to do that, consume his grace, and do it regularly. Our own Daniel Meyer, a pastor, and Greg Ogden wrote these profound words in the book Leadership Essentials, which I absolutely recommend. You've read some of the Essentials books, that Leadership Essentials is a fantastic book. They say this, For some reason, we've come to expect that following Jesus should be relatively easy. We know that in other realms of life, disciplined effort is necessary to achieve anything worthwhile. But we have not applied the same, let alone higher, standards to our becoming Christ-like followers much less leaders. They go on to say this, the Christian life needs to be approached in the same way that an athlete trains to compete, practice, discipline, repetition, and routine. And in his prime, Michael Jordan routinely pulled off victories at the end of games. Why? Because he just simply tried harder at the end of the game? Nope. He was able to do that in the game what he had practiced ad nauseum in the gym ahead of time. I feel our problem is, as Christ followers, that we have been lulled to sleep spiritually by our misunderstanding of the saving grace of God. There are those on the other end of the spectrum that are working hard and and trying to please God and somehow trying to save themselves. And that is an error. We are saved by God's grace and grace alone. And so on the other spectrum we're talking about here is we've been lulled to sleep to say, it's just grace. I don't have to do anything. I just have to ride the coattails of Jesus into heaven and everything will be fine. What the scriptures give us is a healthy balance between those two things. God's grace releases us to be our best. It releases us into a life of transformation into the very image of God himself. Dallas Willard goes on to say this in his great book, The Great Omission. He says, we find it hard to see that grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Earning and effort are not the same thing. Earning is an attitude, and grace is definitely opposed to that. But it is not opposed to effort. When you see a person that has been caught on fire by grace, you are apt to see some of the most astonishing efforts you can imagine. But complacency... That sense of, we're doing pretty good. We're doing better than we were before. We've overcome a few habits. We've gotten past some things, some of our non-Christian behaviors. But complacency is a, a devious, deceptive thing. George William Rutler, in the book called Seven Ages of Man, put it this way. He says, hatred bangs drums. Lust bangs the pulse. Anger bangs the fist. But complacency slides into the soul, unmurmuring, uninvited, and unnoticed, with a warm and quilted aura of coziness. But what Peter's words do for us in this passage today is to wake us up from that sense of complacency, to realize that there are steps ahead of us that, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are called and implored to take. And thus he says to us, make every effort. Get involved in the process of your spiritual growth. And then he uses this amazingly interesting word for a fisherman. Of course, he'd become a a scholar of, of sorts by then, by the time he's writing these words near the end of his life. But he says, make every effort to add to your faith. And the first word will be goodness. We'll look at it in just a moment. The word he chooses for add is very intriguing. It really means, and the picture he's using this from, is in those days when the the 
there was going to be a, a theater production. In those days, it was usually outdoor theater, sometimes indoors. There needed to be a poet who would write a script. There also needed to be a municipality or government that would provide the arena for the show to be put on. But then there was a person, usually one wealthy person, who would supply all the financial needs to pay the actors, pay the singers, pay the musicians, and pay everybody. That's the word Peter chooses to use. He's calling us to invest in our spiritual life. God has written the script, sealed in Jesus' blood. God has created the arena, the world that he's put us in to live in. And it is us who are called by Peter to invest our best efforts. Some of you have been to third-rate movies, haven't you? The ones that look good in the ads, but you get there and realize the acting's terrible, the lighting's terrible, everything about this movie is terrible. Why did, well, they didn't invest much in it probably. The fact is, what kind of movie, what kind of play, what kind of script do you want your life to represent when you're done with it? A B-movie, a third-rate production, or do you want it to be a masterpiece when you present yourself to Jesus Christ? That's what Peter's encouraging us to do, is to invest in our spiritual growth. And friends, this is not a selfish sort of thing, navel-gazing, building ourselves up. We do it so we can glorify him. We do it so that we can become very productive in our life for Christ and bear much fruit for him. We do it so that he will be able to use us as noble instruments wherever he would choose. So Peter tells us to supplement, invest into our faith, add to the saving faith that God has given to us seven specific things. Let me recount them for you right now. The first one is to add goodness or excellence to always be your best and do your best. Secondly, he says to goodness, add knowledge. To be a lifelong learner and keep on growing in your knowledge. And then to add to knowledge, self-control. To become an expert at self-management. Fourthly, he says to add perseverance, which is the ability to stand up when everything around you is falling down. Fifthly, he says to add godliness which is to aspire to be God-like. It really means God-likeness. Sixth is brotherly kindness, to embrace relationships again. And just as an aside, it's easy to be a great Christian if you don't have anybody you relate with, isn't it? It's those people that keep bringing out those bad qualities in us, isn't it? The seventh thing is agape, the apex, the top step of this ladder of growth is to love like God does. So many of us, because we're literate people, when we come to Christ or come to the church and start reading the Bible, can start with the book of Matthew. Oftentimes people do that. It's not long in the book of Matthew where you get to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, and, and Jesus says, amidst other things, he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And you're going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought this Christianity stuff was about grace of God. Well, the fact is, you're never going to get to that highest level, the apex of loving like God does, unless you've taken these other steps and allowed God to grow within you these qualities and capacities. But the goal is we get to that place where we love people the way God does. Let's talk about a couple of these. Excellence, goodness. This is about reflecting that nature in everything that we do, doing your level best at your job, even when everyone else around you is sitting back and being lazy. I heard recently, this is a true story, there was actually an empl a union employee who was sued by the union for working too hard because he was making the rest of the employees look bad. And they were working too hard. He's, he's doing more than he had to. But excellence calls us to rise above the muddling crowds who are satisfied in their moral filth. Stop laughing at crude 
and vulgar humor. Rise above the petty wrangling that people are so often caught up in. No matter what the wrangling's about, excellence calls us above those things. We are partakers of the divine nature. God calls us to move above those things, to be the best person, be the best spouse, be the best parent, be the best child or teacher or boss or employee. Is to enter every day of your life with a mindset is I'm going to be my level best today. I'm going to give it my all today. And by the time my head hits the pillow tonight, I'm going to know that I live this day to its full. That's our choice. That's the call that Peter gives to us is to aim high. Aim way higher than you've ever thought possible because God sees you with that capacity. Brian Harbour picks up this theme in his book, The Rising Above the Crowd. He says that success means being the best. Excellence means being your best. Success means being better than everyone else. Excellence means being better tomorrow than you were yesterday. Success means exceeding the achievements of other people. Excellence means matching your practice with your potential. Simple principle we have to realize in our life every single day. We as humans have the tendency to live up to or down to, not other people's expectations of ourselves, but our own expectations of ourselves. If you feel like you're a miserable, lousy sinner just saved by grace, repeating constantly over over and over bad habits, you will live down to that expectation. But God calls us to live up to the expectation that we are partakers of his very nature and that he is doing a powerful work of transformation You are a changed and changing person, and God calls us to take that step and add that to our faith. Secondly, it calls us to add knowledge, is to be a lifelong learner. I remember the first time I'd read through the Bible, the first time. I had one of those living Bibles. You could check off all the little boxes in the front pages of it, and I'd gotten it done, and I thought I knew it all. That was about 38 years ago. Every time I study a passage of Scripture today, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. Don't stop growing in knowledge. Continue your avid pursuit of knowing God. Read books, take studies, get involved in the process of your spiritual growth through growing in knowledge, and don't stop. Thirdly, Peter says self-control. This is a powerful force. You know anybody that doesn't exercise self-control other than you? We all struggle with this. There's a monster within us. Our human passions, our human desires, on one end, the the things that make our pulse go higher, and the other end, it's laziness. Self-control is being able to manage our inner drives and passions and be the master of those things. It becomes the ability to manage our thoughts, our feelings, our passions, our words, and ultimately our actions. Peter says, add that. If we don't add that and call ourselves Christians and our behaviors and we're just as prone to doing the things the world around us does, how are we ever going to glorify Christ? Must add self-control. Fourthly, he says to us to add perseverance. And it's an interesting parallel he puts here. He says, self-control, manage the monsters within, the passions within, the desire for pleasure within. And then he says, perseverance, learn how to stand up under the pressures from without. So we've got a shield going this way and we've got a filter on our inner selves. These are things we don't come out of the box with, by the way. We have to learn and develop and cultivate these capacities. One thing that gets most of us in trouble more than anything else is our words, our tongues. Scripture has a lot to say about that. James talks about, but the Proverbs give us seven things. I I suspect if you're like me, there's a few things in life that you 
came away from saying, I wish I hadn't said that. Well, Proverbs gives us seven specific things. I'll go over them quickly with you here. Number one, don't speak too much. Don't speak when angry and don't speak harshly. Don't speak before thinking. Don't speak boastfully. Don't speak until you hear both sides. And don't speak of things said in confidence. That might give us a hard time finding much to say, but the fact is, (laughs) control your words. And then he takes us the next step, godliness. When we work those things into our lives is to aspire to be God-like. That's where God is wooing us. That's where he's drawing us up into a heavenly way of life. Godliness is simply asking a simple question every moment of every day, what would Jesus do? You probably had the bracelet, but let's make it more specific. Not what would he do, what is God doing here now? In this situation, in this work situation, in my family situation, in my marriage, what is he doing right now? And I want to follow him and do that. Become like God. And then we add the sixth step is brotherly kindness, brotherly affection. Is learning to treat and love everybody, yes, everybody as your neighbor. I believe the words of Jesus are echoing In Peter's mind as he shares this where Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. That was the standard Jesus set and also said, do unto others what you'd want them to do unto you. My friends, if we could simply apply that standard to every relationship in our lives, starting with the ones that are closest to us, our lives will be radically changed for the better. And with God's help, we can. And then he gets us to the last step, the apex, the top rung on this ladder. And he calls us to love as God loves, to love unconditionally. He has in mind the commandment of Jesus that he gave, one of the last commandments Jesus gave before his crucifixion to his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give you, love each other the way I have loved you. And I'm sure they're thinking, wait a minute, we're still working on trying to love each other kind of the same. Now you're calling us up to your level. And Jesus looked him in the eye and said, yes. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Friends, you and I are called to greatness. Our God is great. And he has called us to rise above, to ascend this stairway, if you will, ascend this ladder. But what Peter says after this, he says, If these qualities are in your life and in increasing measure, meaning we stay on this stairmaster, if you will, (laughs) we keep exercising these things in our life, it'll keep us from becoming ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge of Jesus. And then he gives us five benefits, and I'm going to wrap up with these. Five benefits of applying our best energies and making every effort. Number one, if we are applying these things, we'll be fully engaged and vibrantly alive, bearing much fruit for God. Number two, we will become people of significance and influence just by doing these things that will be always employable by God in his work around the world. Thirdly, and very importantly, you will be provided a rich welcome, a hero's welcome into the heavenly kingdom. Seems to me there was a team in Chicago that got a welcome back to the city with about two and a half million people. Oh, the Blackhawks, you remember them? Millions of people showed up because they won the Stanley Cup. That's the picture Peter has in mind. The cheering of the saints as we walk into that heavenly kingdom because we've been one who has overcome. And the last two things he gives us as benefits of getting involved is that you will never 
fall. In fact, the original says you'll never even stumble. If we're tired of taking two steps forward and five steps back constantly, these principles will change that. We'll be taking three steps forward and then three more steps forward, and we'll never even stumble. And last but not least, we'll always have a clear vision. We won't be blind or even short-sighted. We'll be looking all the way to heaven, not fearing what we've done in our past, but confidently looking forward to that day. Friends, in closing this morning, which one of those rungs of that ladder are you on? Or are you just sitting next to that ladder? Have you grown in the last year, from this sum- last summer to this summer? Have you seen yourself take strides of spiritual growth? Are those places and times in your life, are there ways in which you are doing that investment to supply and add to your faith? And being here on Sunday morning is one of those. Absolutely fantastic. But friends, can we go beyond that? Yes, we can. God has called us to be like him. And it's going to take every ounce of our energy, every ounce of our internal resources to apply ourselves fully with the knowledge that that will result in powerful results. You see, it's never too late to be what you might have been, George Eliot said. And I love this quote. When you were born, you were crying and everyone around you was smiling. Live your life so that when you die, you will be smiling and everyone around you will be crying. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have a design and a desire for us to not just get us to heaven as a place, but to get heaven into us. Thank you for the words that you've given us through Peter We pray that you'll enable us this day and every day to live them out. In Jesus' name, amen.